Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're coming at you from the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is Robert Harder. He's the author of First Crossing, the 1919 transatlantic flight of Alcock and Brown. The first to cross the Atlantic nonstop wasn't Charles Lindbergh, but two long-forgotten British officers, Captain John Alcock and Lieutenant Arthur Witten Brown, flew their flimsy wood and fabric of Vickers Vimy from St. John's, Newfoundland to Clevedon, Ireland on June 14 to 15, 1919, eight years before the Lone Eagle. This is their story. The author, Robert O. Harder, was a USAF Strategic Air Command Cold War B-52D air crewman with 145 combat missions during the Vietnam War. A rated navigator and radar bombardier, he flew nuclear training sorties and stood pad alert. He later became a commercial pilot and certified flight instructor. He is now a freelance writer living in Chicago. Robert Harder, welcome. Hello. Well, I have to ask you, the, the thing that strikes me in your biography is the pad alert thing. And for those that don't know, I, I believe that means during the Cold War, you all would have your B-52s out on the launch pad, out on the runway, ready to go. Is that right? Yeah. Well, the way it worked is um, most of the time it was a, a seven-day uh, tour in the uh, mole hole, as we called it. Uh, it was a uh, reinforced concrete uh, semi-terranean uh, two-level uh, bunker and it was right on what we called the Christmas tree and the reason it was called a Christmas tree was a uh, kind of a taxiway off to one side and the, uh, there was about eight B-52s that would be parked staggered in a manner that suggested from the air a Christmas tree Okay, and we were all within two or three minutes of our planes by uh, when the klaxon went off you could run out the door and uh, and run to your airplane the the fellows in the far the far uh, um, airplanes that were maybe 300 400 yards away would would jump in a uh, in a truck and zoom down there uh-huh. so we could really uh, when the, when the when the horn went off we could have our engines running within about two or three minutes wow Wow. Was there ever a moment when you thought maybe this was it? Or were there, did you always know these were drills? No, I, uh, I, I think we always felt uh, that when the horn went off, when I was a crewman, there wasn't a, uh, there wasn't a national emergency in progress. And uh, so in the back of our minds, we were pretty sure it was a, uh, it, it was a, a practice alert. I have talked to uh, men that were on duty during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and during that period in in November of 1962, there was um, it was it was far and away the most dangerous moment uh, worldwide in terms of nuclear war, and the nation was in what was called a DEFCON two position. There were five levels: five, four, three, two, one. 
One was you're you're at war. So yeah. we were in DEFCON 2, which is right on the precipice. It was the only time that we were ever at that state of alert. And I've talked to men who um, who actually believe that we might very well be launched. So that was that was probably for those fellows. That was probably the most tense moment of their career. Yeah, and back then, I think in '62, I don't think we had intercontinental ballistic missiles quite yet. So the B-52 was the delivery system for nuclear bombs. Yeah, we bombs. had we had some, but they were not anywhere near prolific. Yeah, and you're right. The backbone of our response, our retaliatory response, was the B-52. At that time, we had um, around 600 B-52s that were ready to go. So that's compared today where we have 76. Right. So there's quite a – that was quite a threat to the Soviets. Well, it's a good thing we won the Cold War, and thank you for your service. Hopefully we're not on quite the – level of tension yeah. <laughs> today that well, we were back then. Right. It's dangerous, that's for sure, but hopefully uh, we'll find a way to muddle through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's take some time here with you, and let's leave the tensions of today and go back over 100 years ago. When your book proposal came to me, and you know, I'm working on becoming an historian, I'm not an aviation historian, but I did know about Charles Lindbergh, of course, and we we did a book on Lindbergh, the Lindbergh baby, and that whole mm-hmm. mystery. Yeah. And so I did get into Charles Lindbergh a little bit, and and also a book on Amelia Earhart, um, you know, another aviator. But for the life of me, I never knew about this 1919 flight. I guess because they were Brits and not Americans. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, it really surprised me when your proposal came in. And I'm like, wait a minute, eight years before? First transatlantic flight? So Yeah, it, it really is extraordinary that it had been totally forgotten. I think probably I've given this some thought. And I think probably the reason that it was forgotten is during the 20s, there was an extraordinary number of record-breaking flights around the world, and one flight topped another, and uh, and and then another, and then another. You know, flight to Hawaii, flight to Australia, flight from London to Cape Town, and there were just so many firsts that I think it just got swallowed up in time, and uh, mostly forgotten by even aviation people. Yeah. The other thing that strikes me, too, is you talk about the flimsy wood and fabric airplane that they flew in. You know, obviously, by the time you get to the Lone Eagle, just a few years later, it's a little bit different construction, maybe a little more rigid, uh, durable. Uh, probably the engines are a little bit improved. So aviation or machinery was uh, or technology was certainly rapidly increasing um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And the stimulus for that, like it always is, was the Great War. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it just galvanized the technological changes throughout the world. So many things happened. Uh, just a few years earlier, that flight would have been impossible. But, but because of the changes in construction of the airplane and instrumentation, navigation instruments, it... it it was barely possible, let's put it that way. Yeah. The interesting thing about planes like the Vimy, 
which incidentally was named after uh, the great World War I battle at Vimy Ridge in France. Uh, the, the interesting thing about that, it, the airplane was inherently unstable, which means in pilot talk that you can't take your hands off the wheel. If you take your hands off the wheel, it's going to go out of control. And this was particularly true with the uh, Vickers Vimy. It was, it was just so unstable that Alcock could never let go of the, of the machine at any moment or he'd lose control of the airplane. Today, if you're, you're flying an airplane today, it's almost the reverse. You can take your hands off most airplanes for any number of seconds, even a minute or two. And it might slowly yaw or pitch or something, but it doesn't violently go out of control. So that was, that made it extremely fatiguing to fly the airplane. Sure. Hey, we're going to need to take a break, but we'll be right back. We're talking to Robert Harder, the author of First Crossing, the 1919 transatlantic flight of Alcock and Brown. We'll be right back. The BookSpeak Network brings you history through biography. Sunbury Press Books founder and publisher Lawrence Knorr hosts this program that takes a look at pivotal figures in American history, including the famous, the infamous, and the not-so-well-known. Lawrence is joined by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley, authors of the Keystone Tombstone series of books, available at sunburypress.com. History through biography, here on the BookSpeak Network. We're back talking to Robert Harder, the author of First Crossing. Robert, I'm glad uh, planes these days, when you take your hands off the wheel, they don't go out of control. And I guess yeah. when I'm when I'm a passenger and I feel that little pitch or yaw, maybe that's what the pilot did. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm, I'm kidding. It was probably just the air currents. But uh, anyway, um, so yeah, so these guys are hanging, pretty much hanging on for dear life in this thing. How long were they flying? Well, the... The entire flight, it was 1,890 miles. This is what uh, Brown logged. So 1,890 miles from St. John's, Newfoundland, to Cliveden, Ireland, which incidentally, uh, the reason they selected that spot, it's it's the shortest spot between North America, the shortest route mm -hmm. between North America and, uh, and Great Britain. And it was selected... Uh, two decades earlier by Marconi to set up his first wireless stations across the Atlantic. In fact, there there was wireless stations at St. John's and Cliveden when uh, Alcock and Brown made their flight. So uh, it was, uh, the, the, the total flight took 16 hours and 27 minutes, and they had a wonderful uh, tailwind all the way across. It was a real blessing. So they averaged almost 115 miles per hour ground speed, which was extraordinary for uh, 1919. Wow. So kind of like a kite just being blown across the ocean yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and hanging really on was. for dear life. Yeah. As, as I look at the, uh, the starting point and the destination, I, I recall numerous transatlantic flights that I've made, and I know a lot of them here taking off on the East Coast go up over St. John's. You see right. it on the map if you're watching on the screen. Especially the Lufthansa. Lufthansa is very good at showing you where you're at. It's pretty close to what's called the Great Circle Route, which yeah. essentially means the shortest distance right, right. Uh, between uh, between two points on a globe. Yeah. 
that makes a lot of sense. So um, yeah, and then you got the uh, North Atlantic weather, which was tremendously threatening. Uh, just they, they were very fortunate that they had benign conditions. Yeah, uh, if it had been you know, a typical North Atlantic uh, day, probably wouldn't have made it. But uh, they they were really fortunate. That, the winds were tailwinds, and they didn't run into any violent weather. The worst that they had was fog and poor visibility. That was that made it difficult. And because Alcock did not know how to fly instruments, they they almost lost the airplane a couple of times. Uh, in those days, pilots believed that they could fly by the seat of their pants, that they had inherent um, abilities that most people didn't have their 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 superior physical skills and uh, just by being themselves they could sense where the airplane was up or down or whatever well we know today now that that's absolutely false that anyone that runs into instrument flying conditions can can suffer from um from from vertigo or from uh the inability to, to sense up and down where, where they're at. And what, what happens with that is the, uh, the, uh, the little organs, the vestibular organs in your ear will tumble when the airplane starts oscillating or it starts, you get, you, you lose your other senses. You can't, you can't see. So you're not getting input from, from your eyes or whatever, and these organs literally tumble just like a gyro. And when they do that, you lose you lose your entire sense of up and down. There's a special kind of chair in the Air Force that they put you in. They spin you around and they stop you. And when they stop the chair, you're still going, and you'll tumble right out of the chair if you're not strapped in. So it's it's really it it caught um, Alcock totally unawares and they almost lost the airplane wow. uh, on their way over because he he just his inner ears uh literally his gyros in his inner ears literally tumbled it's an interesting phenomenon and yeah most people don't really appreciate how difficult it is unless it's happened to you that's what killed john f kennedy jr by the way mm-hmm. he was in uh, murky weather conditions and he he lost his situational awareness, and he just lost control of the airplane. What so would have happened it to happen to anybody? What would have happened to Sully that day when he hit the birds? And fortunately, had clear skies. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that was, uh, of course, a different situation. Sure, absolutely, certainly just as dangerous. Yeah, well, uh, you know, this whole talk of flying uh, on the seat of your pants and. Uh, that far now i see june 14th to 15th so it was overnight uh what altitude were were they at do you think they varied quite a bit um they were sometimes right off the deck and and sometimes they well they were trying to get above the weather so that brown could take some celestial observations and the ceiling of the vimy under those conditions was about 10,800 feet and that's that's where he that's they got that high trying to get above the weather and they did finally uh, achieve that and did get some celestial observations but so they were from the deck to ten thousand eight hundred feet just whatever way that they could find uh, 
some way to to see the stars and the sun. Yeah. Now that that's the reason they went up and down. It was oh, and there was another reason too. They were running into icing from time to time, and which is extremely dangerous when the wings and fuselage start start accumulating ice it does two things it adds weight to the airplane and it disrupts the streamlining the airflow over the surfaces so very dangerous and uh, they had a lot of trouble with icing so what did they have on their dashboard they they pretty much flying with a compass then Uh, yeah they didn't have much they had let me think now they had a uh, they had a, a compass it was a very good compass, by the way, probably one of the most advanced uh, in the world at the time. They had uh, an airspeed meter. They had uh, a turn and bank indicator, uh, which helped a little bit with instrument flying, but not a lot. They had an altimeter. And on each engine, they had uh, two engine instruments you could read from the cockpit. Uh-huh. Uh, the nacelle of the engines were, were, I think they were about eight or ten feet away. And you could read two instruments on there, the tachometer and the um, engine heat on each one. So that was that was basically their instrumentation. It was uh, extremely crude. Yeah. The, uh, the controls, the flight controls were all mechanical. There was no hydraulic assist or anything like that. So... It was, you know, just pure muscle power to wrestle the, the, the rudder bar to the yoke. It was like a steering wheel. They didn't have the fancy thing that you imagine today with the, with the yoke. It was just like an automobile steering wheel. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I so, think, uh, yeah, very crude instrumentation. I think about, you know, I'm so spoiled. Sometimes even on short trips, I, I use my GPS in my car. <laughs> think about these guys flying that far on instruments. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, it was straight. Uh, what Brown had to do, and I was very familiar with this, is I, it was the backbone of my training, was dead reckoning, which uh-huh. used uh, time and uh uh, uh, the airspeed and you know, what you think of the winds and all that, and then you estimate how far you've gone and in what direction. So that was the backbone of his navigation. He had a few other tricks. He took, uh, I think, four or five total celestial observations. He wanted more, but he couldn't get them. But but they were enough. He also did, uh, he took uh, drift readings off of uh, icebergs, there's a there's a instrument on on airplanes that uh, uh, it, it was kind of a portable instrument that he could strap to the side of his fuselage. It was called a, a drift bearing plate. We called them drift meters, but you could very quickly you could read the drift of your airplane and you could time uh, the distance between uh, the uh, the reticles on the on the instrument. There was a method of timing them uh, that allowed you to uh, calculate the ground speed that you were going as well. So that was a very valuable aid. But right. but th- those were basically it. The drift meter, his few celestial observations, and his dead reckoning. Amazing. Well, we need to take another break. We're talking to Robert Harder, the author of First Crossing. We'll be right back. 
Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent, diverse authors. Hearth and Home Press brings you When I Listen to a Farmer by Pete Curran, a book of photos and stories from American farmers. Also check out Fly Fishing for Trout and Bass, a beginner's quick guide by Charles F. Johnson, and At Home, 92 home-based activities to keep adults and children busy, sane, and centered by Prudence Ingerman. Find these and other intriguing works at sunburypress.com. We're back with Robert Harder, the author of First Crossing, the 1919 Transatlantic Flight of Alcock and Brown. Robert, you're describing this very harrowing calculation going on. I can only imagine a little bit of anxiety. Where are we really at? Well, the wind is blowing like this. I think we're going so fast. Uh, I think I saw the North Star. I think this, that, I think that. So when they get across the water, I'm assuming they know where they're at visually because they see land, I'm guessing. Obviously, or they, they're calculating that they're close. Now they, they break through the clouds and see Ireland. Did they actually, is that, is that what happened? And then did they actually land at the place they, they planned to, or did they land yeah. at the first airfield? It, it's very interesting. By the way, um, the airplane was not only extremely noisy, you know, you have to remember it was an open cockpit airplane. They got these two big uh, 400 horsepower Rolls-Royce engines roaring right next to you. On top of that, uh, about a third of the way across, one of the exhaust pipes uh, blew. And the effect on that was like you lost your muffler. And the racket was just terrible. They, it was impossible for them to communicate. They lost their, their onboard telephone system, as they called it. It went out uh, almost immediately. So they had to communicate with hand signals and gestures and and by writing notes and things like that. But when they when when they did see land to your to your question, they coasted in. Uh, it was really quite extraordinary. Um, Brown hit it right on the head. He had he had said that they were going to hang their hats on the um, on the masts of the Marconi station at Cliveden when they coasted into Ireland. And darned if they didn't fly over the station. They they hit it right smack dab on the head. Wow. So that was extraordinary. The unfortunate thing was, and I still haven't really figured this out, uh, neither man bothered to find out if they had any airfields close by. <laughs> oh, no. I, they just assumed, I guess, that they were going to land in a field or something. Mm-hmm. And... They, they saw a spot, looked really nice, right next to the Marconi station. And they dragged it, no boulders, everything looked fine. So down they went, and everything looked like it was going to be beautiful. They had actually planned on just resting and then flying the next day to London. And wouldn't you know, they landed in a bog. Uh. And the airplane sunk right up to its nose. And... Uh, Alcock later said it was the biggest disappointment of his life to, to have, in his mind, he ruined, ruined that beautiful flight by landing in a bog. The real shame of it was there was a real nice runway just 10 miles away. Oh. So yeah. that, it's hard to imagine why they didn't, you know, think ahead. You know, I think they were so used to just landing in a field or wherever they could find something in those days that they they never even thought to to look for an airfield. Yeah, maybe they were surprised they, they actually. They were very tired when they when they got yeah. down 
they they were practically deaf. They had to shout at each other. You know, their mm-hmm. ears were just humming away from all that noise and extremely exhausted. But, of course, elated that they'd made it, literally cheated death. Wow. They were met by um, a contingent of uh, British soldiers that were stationed at the Cliveden uh, Marconi station. So they, they literally, within a half an hour, they were eating breakfast in the mess hall. And uh, so that was fortunate. And they were also able to, to uh, communicate to the world immediately through the wireless network at Cliveden. They could tell everybody in the world. They could tell St. John's they made it. They could, they, uh, Brown could tell his fiance that uh, he made it. And they wired uh, Rolls-Royce, thank you for the engine to the Vickers management uh, and the, the whole thing. So it was uh, in the newspapers within an hour or so, the extra editions were out. Yeah, yeah. So I, that my question was going to be about their reception when they got there, but if they landed Tremendous in a box. Tremendous reception. Yeah. In fact, uh, the Irish, you know, this was during the Troubles, during the 1920s, mm-hmm. and the relations between Ireland and Britain were not good. But the Irish set aside all of that, and they welcomed these two British former soldiers with open arms. They just gave them a tremendous welcome uh, everywhere they went. And then it continued all the way across uh, the Irish Sea. They went by ship back to England and London, and they just received the royal treatment. They uh, they, they went to um, they were they were invited to an audience before the king. And he uh, gave them their their knights of the British Empire um, uh, commissions, if you will. Uh, and so now they were Sir John and 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 <laughs> Sir Arthur. And uh, Winston Churchill was appointed uh, the uh, individual. Uh, he was an assistant minister of transportation, I believe it was. And uh, he was uh, award. He was given the opportunity to award the the uh, prize, the ten thousand pound check for being the first to cross the Atlantic within seventy two hours. And uh, so it was a joyous time for the men, and uh, of course it changed their lives forever. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, a couple more questions for you. I know there's some listeners that are thinking. They were in this airplane for all this time. What did they eat, and how did they go to the bathroom? Yeah. <laughs> it's not like you could go to the back of the cabin and into a right. tiny space. <laughs> right. They uh, they were careful. I, I did look into this, and, and I also could intuit it from my own personal experience. You're very careful when you're going on a very long flight. I, I've flown as long as 25 hours at one time. And although we did have emergency um, uh, facilities, you didn't really want to use them. But they they were a little bit more limited. So they were very careful to to relieve themselves of solid waste before they left. Right. And they were very careful not to eat very much. And they took along a jar for um, for urinary purposes. And they would they would use that and then dump the contents over the side. So, yeah, it's a it's a question. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody in a boat there in the north, <laughs> the North in, Atlantic, got sprayed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Just> right. <laughs> well, 
it actually uh, would have evaporated yeah, long before it hit the ground. But <laughs> so, one other question: What happened to the airplane? I know it lands in a bog. The airplane was rebuilt. It was brought back to London and Vickers. It was rebuilt, and for anyone visiting the Science Museum in uh, London, they can go and see the Vickers Vimy, the original airplane. It's uh, in a place of honor and uh, will always be there. Incidentally, just to, to, to finish the thought on the two men, unfortunately, John Alcock was, was killed six months later flying uh, an experimental airplane to the Paris Air Show. Really unfortunate. He he was killed. Uh, I I am certain because he lost control in instrument conditions. The, the thing that almost got him over the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. He just uh, you know he, he he pushed his luck too far. He he was doing what we called scud running. So unfortunately, he didn't live long to enjoy his fame. Brown lived um, until 1948. Uh, he lost. He got married to his sweetheart. Unfortunately, they lost their only son to um, World War II. He was killed during the Normandy invasion, and um, he he served as a colonel in World War II, and uh, in navigation training and whatnot, and had kind of a sad uh, a sad end of his life. He was crippled up so bad from his war wounds that that uh, he was a very uncomfortable man. He he may have decided to end his own life. I, I kind of leave that up in the air. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, you, you want to be careful with that, but I, I could certainly sympathize with, uh, with his situation. Mm, that's sad. So that's what... Uh, they, they did. They, they had a glorious uh, exploit... And uh, what they did was a tremendous advance in aviation, actually. You know, it just showed the things that could be done. Uh, and um, it was a tremendous boost to, to and a real start to all the 1920s uh, records that were broken. All the advances that were made it paved the way for so much. So the, yeah, so Lindbergh comes along, and obviously he's the one who becomes even more famous. And I guess that's because it's the first solo flight across the Atlantic, is that right? Right. It was the it was the first solo flight and it was it was actually a thousand miles farther, three thousand yeah. miles New York to Paris. Yeah. So yeah, it was uh, and he did it uh, Lindbergh did it all on straight dead reckoning. You know, he didn't try to take any drift uh, meter readings or celestial or anything. He just he just did dead reckoning all the way. Now, did he also fly that same path up over St. John's and across the North Atlantic to Ireland yeah, and then down around Yeah, he flew right over St. John's. Yeah, that, yeah, that great circle route, that it's immutable. You know, that's the shortest distance. And, and as it turned out, it was on a straight line between New York and Paris as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he flew right over uh, right over Right St. over the John's bog. And he flew right over uh, <laughs> Cliveden, Ireland, basically. Yeah, that's great. Why do you think... Lindbergh is so well known, and these two gentlemen aren't. As we look oh, back I, tonight. I think there was a number of reasons. Number one, he did it all by himself. He didn't have uh, any big corporate backing, or he didn't have the government. Uh, 
he was literally the lone eagle. He came out of nowhere. He was extremely good-looking, appealing. Uh, he just captured the imagination of, of the country. And then when he succeeded, that was just extraordinary. I mean, it it just uh, it was an extraordinary thing, that uh, a phenomenon that uh, I'm sure will never be equaled again, not even with somebody like Neil Armstrong. It, it right. just... Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a combination of all those things. Yeah, because the reception. And there were there were there were several men that had died in the previous month trying to make the attempt as right. well. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lindbergh seems well, it was to have a very been tr- dangerous, a very dangerous uh, thing to try. He definitely got the treatment of like what you see with the the astronauts in from '69. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Amazing. Well, Robert, it's been great talking to you. We just have a few seconds to go. Uh, what else are you working on now? Well, I'm working on uh, selling that book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's the that's the big thing. I, I kid my friends. I say, hey, writing the book is easy. Selling the thing is the challenge. Yeah, and, I hear uh, you. As you know, there's no small truth to that. No, no, but, no. But uh, I'm working on some magazine articles. I've got... Uh, a couple of other book projects that I'm finishing up, which uh, when I'm ready, maybe I'll uh, give you a, a shout. Great. And um, and that's kind of it, you know. But the big big thing right now is uh, is trying to sell the market the book. That's I give a it's lot. It's so of- hard to, as you know better than I. It's yeah. hard to to get people's attention. Uh, to uh, there's so many things that people can do. So many books that are available it's hard to break through the clutter so it's a real challenge i've said many times uh it's never been easier to publish a book never harder to sell one than the era yeah. we live in now <laughs> i think right. so, some of, if you had written about Lindbergh, maybe we'd be selling a lot more of them but yeah. uh, this is a yeah, story right. story that needs well, to that be told subject's been kind of done so uh, yeah. i'm i'm trying to look at things that maybe are aren't discovered oh i agree i think it's a great topic robert it's been great having you on today Thank you. All right. We'll have you back sometime, maybe with the next one. And uh, All right. Thank you much. Yep, take care. We've been talking to Robert Harder, the author of First Crossing, the 1919 transatlantic flight of Alcock and Brown. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.